Welcome to the Seafood Matters Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Cowie. In each episode, I speak with industry leaders, fishery scientists, fishermen, and seafood chefs. We'll highlight the importance of seafood in our daily lives, economy, and environment. Whether you catch your own seafood, love cooking it, or want to learn more about where your fish comes from, you'll find it all here on the Seafood Matters Podcast. If you enjoy this episode, hit subscribe, share it with a friend, or leave a five-star review. And you can get in touch with me by visiting seafoodmatterspodcast.com. As a member of a family steeped in fishing, his mother was a herring gutter, and John Goodlad's career began when he went to sea on his father's boat at the age of 10. After studying in university for five years, he joined the Shetland Fishermen's Association where he became Chief Executive Officer. He was also CEO of the Shetland Fish Producers Organization, Chairman of Fishing Innovation and Sustainability, and a board member of the North Atlantic Fisheries College. Serving as Vice President of the Scottish Fishermen's Federation, he then became a fish farmer specialising in the production of organic salmon. In this discussion, John explains how he pioneered annual fish quota allocations and established community-owned fish quotas. Welcome to Seafood Matters, John. I would just like to start by asking your family fishing background. Well, I guess, Jim, like many Shetlanders, I've uh, I've a very uh, uh, proud family history in the fishing industry. My my dad was a fisherman most of his life, and my mum went to the gutting when she was younger. Um, and I've got uh, cousins who still work in the seafood industry, an extended family. So uh, I'm very proud of that background. It was part of me growing up. It was part of who I was, part of the culture of the village I grew up in, Hamnavo, in Shetland. Um, So I've been very lucky to work in this great industry, and I feel that that that's very much embedded in my family uh, uh, fishing history. That's fantastic. John, tell me... Are you when you're saying your mum was gutting? Is that with the like with the when the, the herring? That's right. Yes, my mother was uh, like many people of her generation. She went to the gutting, as we say in Shetland, gutting herring uh, for and then salting the herring into barrels. She went to Lerwick for several years. She's from the island of Walsa. She's still alive, and then I think for probably three or four years she went to the winter herring down in Lostov and uh, she always loved that and she loves talking about that you know she enjoyed the gutting in Lerwick but Lostov I think was something special you know it was away from Shetland the weather was nicer and um, so you know it was like fishing uh, gutting was very hard work but she talks with a great fondness about her days uh, as a young woman working in the in the gutting industry. You know, I think it always fascinates me and I got a lot of it from my my father. And I'm just thinking your mother would have probably been in Wick as well if she was in Lowestoft. 
she would have been gotten because I think they just followed the fishing. The whole, all that people. That's right, and it was out. Uh, she she probably was. I mean, Larry can most of the places she talks about, and it was it was really interesting. You know, different uh, gutting girls. Uh, gutting women from different places went to different areas. So Lowstuff was always where the Shetland herring lasses went, whereas uh, somebody told me that the gutters from Peterhead always went to Great Yarmouth. And it, it's interesting how these, I mean, why it ever developed like that, I don't know. But these kind of things continued. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a wonderful heritage and a wonderful history. Another thing that I found incredible learning of that, and you're probably mother, your mother is, was, was it as well, from the gutters, the salters, and even reference to your book, which we'll discuss later, it come back to me as well with the hand lines and things like that. None of them wore gloves. It was their bare hands. I I know, absolutely. And and, and the, 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 the gutting girls did uh, put sort of... Uh, some cloth around their fingers if they had a cut to tie it up because obviously if you did cut your finger or your hand with a knife working in salt all day it would never heal never ever heal so they had to cut it up and i think that was one of the you know they obviously had lots of complaints about lots of things and that was one you know just the gut the, the cuts on the hands and every day before they started they would wind their fingers up um but absolutely it was um you know the health and safety world that we live in now, and some people would say we're closeted in now, um, you know, people just wouldn't be able to do that. They're not, they're not tough enough, strong enough. I, I I know I still, when in the herring season, I still get a box or two of herring and salt them and give them away to some of the older retired fishermen and that too, that love them. And it always comes back to me when I'm doing it, how slow I am compared to how fast they were doing it in the past. Absolutely. And I love, you know, I love uh, looking at old film footage of the herring industry. I, I, uh, and, and the film footage which exists of gutters gutting, it's just incredible the speed that they did. And then the other film footage I love watching is a is a crew of herring fishermen hauling and shaking drift nets. And it's the teamwork, you know, uh, the way they all haul together and then all shake together and the herring fall out. And it, it, nobody says anything. It's just they all are... It's an incredible example of working as a team. And I never tire of watching those crews hauling herring nets. Yeah, very much, very much. So can, if we can move on to your, as your career develops, your time, did you go straight into the Shetland Fishermen's Association or did you do other things before that? Well, it's, it's interesting. Like many people from a fishing family, my dad did everything he could to discourage me becoming a fisherman. And uh, it never worked. I mean, I just, that's all I wanted to do was was go fishing. Um, so I went to sea with him for the first time when I was 10 years old at the drift net for herring. Loved that experience. 
by the time I I was able to leave school, I was I was kind of doing okay at school. So I my my plan was I would go to university, and after I finished university, I would go I would go fishing. I would go to sea. Um, so I loved my time at university, and during the summer holidays, I always went as a crew member on the local sea netters. And I enjoyed that. Uh, so I was—I did five years at university. I did a couple of degrees, and I guess at the end of five years uh, at the Sea Net during the summertime, you know, sixteen to eighteen weeks, uh, which I, I absolutely loved. I, I suppose I got a bit of that out of my system. And so when I finished uh, university, a job came up very, very uh, uh, quickly with the Shetland Fishermen's Association, and I took a step into the dark and I applied and I got the job and um, I just absolutely loved the job. I was working in an industry which I loved. Uh, I was possibly able to use my university degree to some extent to help me do the job uh, to the best of my ability. Um, so yeah, so that's how I got into the into the Shetland Fishermen's Association. It was kind of by an indirect route and it was very much, you know, my my original desire had been to go to sea, which I was able to fulfil to some extent by by going fishing in my in my summer holidays. T taking it back to the fishing side and your dad, would would that have been the old ring netters? No, that was drift netters, Jim. The the, the Shetlanders never had a fleet of ring netters at all. That was very much a, a sort of fifth or fourth west coast thing. Um, and by the time I grew up. Uh, um, you know, this was the early 70s. Um, there was still a fleet, I think, until 1972 of about about 20 drift net boats in Shetland, half from Borra and half from Walsa. Uh, and there's probably the same, about 20 or 30 from the northeast coast of Scotland, Fraserburgh and Peterhead. A few from Stornoway. So it was really at the, it. It was it was the last days of the drift net. Um, and, you know, in the early 20th century, Shetland had had 400 drift net boats fishing, you know, sail-powered boats. Uh, but Shetland never had uh, ring netters. It was always drift net uh, that was fished from Shetland. In the 90s, we took over an office on the Clyde. And they were all, in fact, Ashley was managing that office for a number of years. And they were all as we call them, proners. Langustines is what they're known by chefs, but fishermen, it's prawns. Every one of them, John, was ex-ring netters. And I just used to love listening to them and it, it, to picture it, what a dangerous job. Yeah, yeah. I, it, 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 I, I share that fascination, Jim, and, and I've read quite a bit about the ring net fishing and... and um, when I was involved in the through the Fishermen's Association in the SFF, um, Cecil Finn uh, from the Clyde from Campbellton was president of the SFF, and you know I I got to know Cecil quite well, and I just and Cecil had a, a many had many great abilities um, uh, as a good fisherman, as a good political leader for the industry. And he also had a great ability as a storyteller. And I just used to love 
hearing his stories about going to the ring net and when he got his own ring net boats built. And it was just fascinating. So I, I, although I never saw a ring net being shot myself, uh, I think by listening to uh, Cecil Finn telling his stories, I, I, I got a little bit of an insight into it. He, we, we had a, for the company we had down in the Clyde, we had each year we had a dinner dance where all, everybody congregated and we had settled down one time as a guest speaker. And I was just absolutely fascinated listening to him. But I'll tell you something else about that, John. Uh, there was another skipper. The, Ashley will remember him very well, Billy Gibson. And I I thought, you know, with, it's only right that I discuss, tell, tell the audience, mostly fishermen, how the office is going, what it's doing, where we're going, what we're going to do. So I thought I was, and, but obviously I, just maybe st stood up for a wee bit too long. And in his broad Ayrshire accent, Billy, this Billy Gibson, what was his boat, Ashley? Fairmorn, was it? No. He was the Spindrift. Spindrift, yeah. He came up to me and uh, he says, well, this is after the meal before they, we went for the dancing or the drinking. <laughs> And he says, well, Jim, he says, in very broad Ayrshire, I'm, it's a broad bill affair. He says, I'm, thank you very much. Shook my hand. He says, I'm no, I'm no great on the legs, so I'm no waiting for the dancing. But he says, your speech fairly shortened the winter. <laughs> well, that was uh, praise indeed. <laughs> <laughs> John, if I could ask you to expand when you you join when did you join the the Shetland Fishermen's Producers Association organization? Well, well, well I, I, I joined the Shetland Fishermen's Association. It was the early nineteen eighties and then I I guess one of the first things I did was at that time all the Shetland boats were in the SFA, the Shetland Fishermen's Association, uh, but were also members of the SFO you know, the, the Scottish, the main Scottish yeah. people. So one of the first things I did was uh, discuss the possibility of establishing a Shetland PO, which we did. Um, so the Shetland PO, I think, was set up in 1982. So from 1982 and onwards, I, I ran the Shetland Fishermen's Association and the Shetland PO from the same office, and we gradually built up a team uh, to run both organisations. And I'm delighted to say that in the brand new offices that Shetland fishermen have today in, in Lerwick above the new fish market, the SFA and the Shetland PO are still operated from the same office. Okay. Is it the same people or? Uh, no. Um, uh, Brian Eisbister, who joined oh. uh, the uh, Shetland, was, was shortly after we set up the PO. Brian really joined from, from school and Brian was a, a very, very... Uh, valued and capable number two to me all the time I was there. I'm delighted to see that Brian now uh, runs the Shetland PO, uh, but he's, there's a whole new team of people in with Brian uh, running the both associations, both organisations. 
Going on from there, what's your views on the sectoral quota system and Shetland regulation order? Well, I, I, I guess if I was looking back to the main things I was involved in for that period, I was with the Shetland Fishermen's Association and the Shetland PO. I suppose that the, the, the sectoral quota system and the Shetland regulating order were two things in which I, I, I feel I perhaps played played some part. Um, the, the allocation of fish quotas to producer organisations to manage is, of course, something that everybody just accepts. But, you know, it wasn't always like that. For a long time, uh, the quotas were allocated on a weekly, fortnightly, sometimes monthly basis by the Scot by fisheries departments. Um, and uh, and there was very little flex- flexibility in that system. So the Shetland PO was very much at the forefront of saying, you know, give us, in sh- give the Shetland fleet their allocation of quota for the year and we will guarantee we'll make a better job of managing it than the Scottish government would. Um, and I'm pleased to say they did that. I think it was 1984. They did uh, the Shetland PO was the first PO in the whole of the UK to trial the sectoral quota system. I think it was 1984, and it was a great success. And by 1985, 1986, it was it was it was uh, it was rolled out to the whole of the Scottish fleet, and then eventually the UK fleet. And then within the Shetland PO, we pioneered the idea of community-owned fish quotas. So uh, as many of the listeners may recall, the Shetland PO was in the forefront of buying fish quota and and retaining that fish quota within the PO uh, for the benefit of the, the fleet as a whole. So the sectoral quota system was fascinating to see how it evolved. And of course, it's still evolving. And I was delighted to have played, as I say, my part in, in helping to establish the system and then uh, trying to fine-tune that system so that uh, we were able to to have some community quota within the PO, which is still used today for that purpose. So I take it you went from there on or up to the SFF, Scottish Fishermen's Federation. Uh, That's right. Well, my role within the SFF, I was always sitting around the table at the SFF as, as the Shetland Fishermen's Association representative, um, okay, and uh, and so I I did that throughout my time at the Fishermen's Association. But then uh, throughout the nineteen nineties, I forget exactly when it was. I I at, at the time that Cecil became president, I was one of the two vice presidents of the SFF, and I enjoyed those days. Uh, we had many battles within the SFF, and we had many battles between the SFF and uh, UK government, the EU, and so on. Um, And it brought home to me very much that um, one of the great prizes in the fishing industry, and it's very difficult to get because we were talking earlier about fishermen being straight-talking people, Um, very easy to, you know, express their views forcibly at individual level or at association level and then fall out. And that unity of all the fishermen in Scotland working together through the Federation was was difficult to maintain, but no question, whenever we had that degree of unity, we were able to get the best possible deal 
uh, and that we could at the time. So I, I, I grew to really appreciate that in my time with the SFF, and I've really fond memories of working with uh, Cecil Finn and then Alex Smith, uh, 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 who succeeded uh, Cecil, and uh, Bob Allen and, uh, uh, as chief executive. Yeah. And then Hamish Morrison after him. So it was a great team in those days, and, and I enjoyed that very much. I I would take it a step beyond that, John. Now, if you remember, well, I certainly remember, I think you had a lot of credibility as well. It's one word you didn't include in, in your... And I would certainly include it, be, and... and I was absolutely so impressed when you'll remember the occasion when they had the, we were still in the EU at the time and we had the midterm review for the common fisheries policy in Shetland. Would that be oh, yes, the that's, 90s? That's right. We had, it was when the North Atlantic Fisheries College was newly opened and, yeah. was, and we held a conference. That's right. And uh, it, it was pretty impressive. We had uh, one of the senior people from the commission there. We had the Scottish fisheries minister, the UK fisheries minister, and the Norwegian fisheries minister all speaking. Yeah, I remember that. That was a great couple of days. I And one of the things that, I mean, I even by then, I had spent quite a lot of time in the industry, and I obviously talked to a lot of fishermen. I was directly involved with fishermen. And I have to say, one of the things that so impressed me was that the the relationship and the respect you got from that people, and almost it was a something that well I know because I got it from I can't remember the name. He was a he was a Scottish Scottish guy, but he was the fisheries minister at that time, although Westminster based. And I can still picture them there, and I think they appreciated people like yourself having the connection with the industry. Yeah. Well, that's very kind uh, of you to say so, uh, Jim. And uh, and yes, I mean, I throughout my time with the Fishermen's Association and the SFF, I always took the view that um, you know you, there would be ample occasions when you would disagree with government, um, but. It was one thing to disagree and to articulate your arguments well. It was quite another thing to then say, okay, this is what we don't like, but here's some suggestions for what would work and what the fishermen would be prepared to accept. And I always found as a formula that that was, uh, it, it, that was important. I'm not suggesting for one minute that every idea I put forward, the government ran with. But I think the government got very fed up with everything they proposed. The fishermen's associations just said, no, that won't work. And they really listened when fishermen's associations said, well, look, that won't work. But if you do it this way, that will stand a better chance of success. And I think that I, I, I always tried as far as possible to get the Fishermen's Association in Shetland and the SFF to try and, and be proactive and come forward with some, some ideas. And I think um, that's when political lobbying by Fishermen's Association was at its best, when you 
articulated what was wrong with what the government was proposing and then made suggestions for what would work better. Yeah, rather than knock everything back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, may I ask a question for the audience, John? Um, to put this in context, when you were at the height of your job there, can you tell me how many vessels you represented in the Shetland Fisheries Association? Um, I think the Shetland Fishermen's Association at the time uh, had something like 120 vessels, something like that. And the Shetland PO, which was the large, really was just the whitefish and pelagic vessels were in the PO, not the shellfish vessels. I think we started off with around 70 in the PO. Well, this is a, this, you're going to probably say I'm answering you like a politician, not giving you, not giving you this, a straight answer to your question, but I'll tell you something in comparison to what John's saying. And speaking to, just recently to Andrew Bremner, and we were talking about the industry, John, and when I, I mean, I'm from a small fishing village in the East Coast called Helmsdale. When, when we were working there as a youngster and just getting into the industry, there was nine CNET boats in Helmsdale and that would probably be one of the smallest fishing villages in in around Scotland. And Andrew was that's nine in Helmsdale when I left in the seventies. And Andrew's saying there is eight senators in Scotland now. I mean that's that's a, a show of decline. But my point I was getting at John was if we take your number as you represented a hundred boats, anywhere between seventy and one hundred and ten. What I'm conscious of is that a hundred boats with an average of say four crewmen each is four hundred people, and if each of those is a family of four, it's two thousand people. That represents ten percent of the Shetland Islands at a twenty thousand population. So your decision making and negotiation affected. 10% of the people on your island and broader if you build in the stores and the support and the oil. So it's a good thing you had respect because that was an exceptionally responsible part of your life. Would you agree? Uh, absolutely. It was, a, it was a weight of responsibility, which I felt uh, keenly and took very, very seriously. Um, absolutely. It wasn't um, the, the outcome of the Fisheries Council in December in Brussels every year. I knew that whatever the outcome was, be it good or bad or indifferent, would have a real impact on many, many families in Shetland. And because of the importance of the seafood industry to Shetland, and that importance remains to this day. Yes, there's, there's less vessels. The vessels are, uh, are, are, of course, more efficient, bigger, both pelagic and whitefish. But, you know, the interesting thing with the with the, the fleet in Shetland is that unlike many other parts of the UK, I mentioned that the Shetland Fishermen's Association probably had about 110 vessels. That was whitefish pelagic and all the shellfish vessels. Um, as a reason, I reckon, uh, now not all of these vessels are perhaps members of the Shetland Fishermen's Association now, but the, the entire Shetland fleet, including a hugely expanded inshore fleet, it's probably over 200 now. So we're bucking the trend nationally. And that's as a result of two things. 
First of all, Shetland has built up a very large fleet. I think at the latest count, it was something like 160 mackerel handliners and cod chiggers. And these are often part-time fishermen. This is how young guys get into the fishing. Um, and, and so that's built up really over the last five or six years. So that's increased the fleet. These are all under 10-meter boats. And then secondly, the local management of the shellfish industry through the Shetland Regulating Order, which uh, I, I was very much involved in uh, with the Fishermen's Association, that means that the local shellfish industry is managed locally through a permit scheme and a whole range of other methods. That's conserved shellfish stocks. The shellfish stocks have never been in better shape. And there's more boats fishing shellfish now than where when I joined the Shetland Fishermen's Association all those years ago. So yes, um, it, it, you know, the industry is completely different from what it used to be. Um, and there's less whitefish trawlers and, and less pelagic boats. But in this inshore sector, both shellfish and hand lining for mackerel and, and chigging for cod, there has been uh, an expansion of the industry. And it's wonderful to see this is where Many of the new recruits for the industry in Shetland are coming through. It's just fantastic to see that. The, I, I always felt there was a vibrance in the Shetland industry anyway, John. But the other thing that's maybe you have to be careful with, Ashley, when you're asking the question about, and I'm saying about the difference between Helmsdale in the 70s and, and what Andrew says about the Scottish fleet now, and very much some the same with John in, in Shetland. The numbers are down, but the size of the vessels and the catching capacity has greatly increased. So there are much more efficient, well-managed uh, unit. While the size you're suggesting of the fleet has increased and their catching power has increased, would you say that so too has their competition from foreign vessels increased? Um, the increase is very much that, I, that I'm referring to is very much inshore. You know, it's within six, the regulating order is only within six miles. Of okay. And the handline mackerel fleet is very much within six miles. Um, and within that area, there's no foreign competition whatsoever. The foreign, okay. the foreign competition, of course, is in terms of uh, whitefish vessels in the North Sea and the west coast of Scotland and Pelagic. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people uh, quite rightly um, are, are saddened that the reduction in the size of the British and Scottish fleets and often make the comment that it's only the British fleet that's reduced. That's not the case. You know, if you go to ports like Skagen, ports like Vigo, ports like Boulogne, all across Europe, the fleet is declined okay. in all of these ports. And it's it's to what Jim said earlier, the main reason for that is technology. Yeah. Boats are more efficient. You need less boats to catch your quota than you did 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, that's very true. Quota is another major factor in, in it now. I was selling fish in the fish market in Scrubster today, and the skipper... Was, tell, was just saying uh, he, to lease monkfish, it's £2,300 a tonne. Uh, 
Absolutely. And I mean, the, the with the quota system has come lots of unfortunate side effects, I suppose you could call it, or, or implications. One is the, the cost of leasing and buying quota. It used to be that, you know, fish was for free. Now you have to buy the right to fish through quotas. And another side effect is, is very much the concentration of quota ownership in fewer hands. And um, this is not unique to the UK. You know, in every country of the world which has adopted the quota system for managing fisheries, and I think that's pretty much every country in the world, you know, whether it's New Zealand, Australia, United States, Russia, Iceland, Norway, and so on. Uh, quota ownership does concentrate into fewer hands. Uh, and that, I would guess, is, is one of the uh, challenges that governments have to try and, 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 and say, is that something that we think is fine? Or is it something we want to try and mitigate? Um, and to some extent, uh, what the what's happened in Iceland, and to some extent, what the Scottish government has done with uh, providing a degree of quota uh, availability for the under ten meter fleet, whether that's mackerel or cod, is kind of mitigating against that. I referred to that earlier, but it's a it's a complicated situation, and each country, and each fishery, and each species will be different. John, we this is a fantastic moment to tell you this regarding everything you've just mentioned, our last episode was with Mark Dekicolis, the chair of the advisory committee for ISIS, and he had a high-level conversation with Jim about how quota assessments are calculated in the modern world. And let's not open the can on that. It's such a complex thing, but I think you should listen to that because it's an exceptionally revealing episode in that you'd be surprised about how much that guy knows about the pressures that the industry face. And while there's a distance between executive NGOs and the fishermen, that distance perhaps isn't as far as we think. They're pretty switched on people. Would you agree, Jim? Mark Dekicola spoke strong and was quite aware of what's going on at sea. I was, yes, I would have to say he was. The, the the fascinating thing for me in it all was not so much the ICES, Mark Dickey called us. It was the one before that, with Michael Kaiser, who's a fishery scientist in Harry at Watt University. And John, I, I, I'm actually quoted on the thing, uh, on the podcast of saying to him, I says, Michael, I'm hearing you. I just, I just wonder if there are disjoint or something happening in between us is because I speak to lots and lots of fishermen and I says, you're telling me that you feel you want to speak to fishermen more and be more involved with them and I can tell you they want to speak to you. Uh, absolutely. No, I, I will have to. I've, I've li I listen. I'm an avid listener to uh, your podcast, Serious Guys, uh, but I, I, and I heard Mike Kaiser's one, but I haven't heard the last one with the guy from ISIS, and, and that's it's the, not it's not it's not published yet. John. Well, that's it's, why I haven't heard it. When when's that coming out, <laughs> Ashley? It's coming out tomorrow, John, and it's really imperative. It's imperative you do listen, and this is why. Um, Jim and I were discussing this, and we think that after four or six weeks passes, we couldn't think of an, a more interesting podcast to, than to invite yourself and Mark Dekicolis or perhaps Michael Kaiser on to get really into the nuanced sort of 
parts of this quota discussion. I think uh, I'm looking forward to hearing that. And, and you know, it's very, uh, it's very easy, you know, stock science is very difficult. You know, how, how on earth can anybody calculate how many cod are in the North Sea? or how many herring are in the Clyde. I mean, it's incredibly difficult. Um, and the outcome of the science as undertaken by ISIS, often fishermen argue quite strongly and quite rightly that it, it isn't quite right. But it's a very, very difficult uh, uh, subject. But, you know, the, 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 the line that some fishermen have sometimes taken, that these guys don't know what they're talking about, it's just nonsense. They're doing the best they can they're very using very sophisticated mathematical modeling. They're doing the best they can with the information they have. And, and ISIS, you know, some people argue that ISIS is part of the EU. ISIS is an international organization that's quite separate from the EU. You know, I, ISIS governance, the quota set in Iceland, the quota set in Canada, um, and it's all we've got. And the more dialogue that ISIS can have with fishermen's associations and fishermen on the ground, the better. I couldn't agree with you more, John. One of the things that I, in fairness to this Mark Dickey-Colas, I said I, I to him, which you'll resonate with, I said, you know, one of the fears the fishermen have is you've increased the cod quota last year by 63%. And you're proposing a 17% decrease next year. I says fishermen don't see that massive swings in the in the stock. And the other thing, which they have a genuine fear of, and I get this firsthand from them, is if there's a 17% cod reduction, and the monkfish are knocked back a bit as well. I says they have serious concern about their viability. And he said, he says, I am well, well aware and I totally appreciate and accept that. And I think my having, I suppose, worked for 20 years in the, in the political sphere of representing fishermen, my fundamental disagreement with the ISIS approach has always been it must be possible to avoid these huge increases and then huge decreases. Why not even out the peaks and troughs? Because at the end of the day, you know, so if, if the science is saying you can get a 60% a increase in your cod quota, you know, take 30%, leave a bit in the bank. So the next year they're saying there should be a 40% reduction, then it should be you know, maybe a 20% reduction, try and even out these peaks and troughs. And I've never fully accepted the arguments as to why that can't be done. Uh, I think ISIS should take a longer-term perspective on, on setting annual TACs so as to avoid these dramatic increases and dramatic reductions. Well, the other thing I said to... When I was talking about that, John, was I said to him, I says, you, the fisherman's view again, you increased it by 63% last year, which looked like a massive hike. I says, but 
the way they look at it, 63% of nothing is nothing. <laughs> That's right. That's it, it was so, it was so <laughs> low before that. That's right. John, if I could paraphrase Mark Dickey-Colis, he made reference, if I, get this, if I remember this right, that he said, well, you, obviously, the sea isn't, the sea's broken into sea areas for quota purposes, but he said shoals and stocks don't adhere to those boxes that we do. So he said there's lots of fluctuations in connected migration areas that that show as an enormous increase, perhaps. But when you look at the greater calculation, it's not perhaps as big a swing as it appears to somebody locally. Can you comment on that? Yeah, no, that's a very good point, Ashley. And I think I think that um, you know ISIS tries the ISIS scientists try to introduce some degree of statistical and spatial order in into what is an incredibly complicated system. So you've got the four degree line, and west of four degrees are west of Scotland stocks, and east of four degrees are North Sea stocks. There's no way on the planet that a haddock comes up to four degrees and turns and goes around. So, I mean, everybody recognises these are very artificial uh, distinctions. And I'm delighted to hear um, the, 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 the chap from ISIS recognising that. And so I think they recognise these are, at best, pretty uh, approximate and rough divisions that they have to make because they're in order to manage a stock you need to have some form of boundaries but clearly they are artificially introduced and uh, you know fish shoals and fish don't respect any uh, boundaries laid down by governments or scientists or anyone else thank you mark's going to appreciate that perspective i'm sure yeah john before we end there uh, the I was making the point, which he accepted. I says, what do you think a fisherman feels? He's fishing at Rockall. He's hauled his net. There's monkfish, cod, and haddock in the net. Monkfish has to be logged for Rockall, but, and it, and it can't be, it can't be, but uh, anything else. But the haddock in the same net, well, that can be west of Scotland or, or, you know, or it's—I mean, it's a nightmare for—I mean, the fishermen, the skipper, and the wheelers must almost have to be part fisherman, part lawyer to work it all out. Mm -hmm. And so too was Mark's answer, because when you asked him to explain that, he had a big, long, pregnant pause, and I don't remember the nuances of his answer. But when I heard it, I thought he's been asked this and pushed on this so many times that he had this kind of standard answer that came out to deal with it. But by no part of it bullshit, he's the first to admit this isn't an exact science. And we're dealing with data. We're dealing with hard data from some boats that are using technology. We're dealing with anecdotal data from smaller fleets. And it's an enormous chaos of data. And they try to derive then information from that and then they have to pass that on to governments who have a part of how that data is presented and interpreted um so yeah good oh this is great i'm delighted to go further into this quota science i think it's something that our audience will find really interesting from fishermen to the person cooking with the fish at home yeah john did the your you went into fish farming did that come after the your role in the sff sfa and SFPO and that. Yes, very much so. I, uh, I, you know, when I was working for the SFA and 
Shetland PO and SFF work, I was very much aware that a brand new seafood industry was just exploding in Shetland in the uh, in the 1990s with lots of salmon farms being set up. Same has happened on the west coast of Scotland and happened in Faroe in Norway. And, um, and I was intrigued by fish farming. Uh, it was completely different from fish catching, but it was also producing a high-quality seafood product. So I... Um, I suppose it was just a coincidence of circumstances. My my uncle, who had recently sold uh, his own fishing boat, uh, was working on a fish farm, and I got talking to him, and he and I went into partnership and established our small salmon farm, and and uh, we built that up over a period of years. So by um, by the time I left the Shetland Fishermen's Association and Shetland PO, we had established a, a fish farm of considerable size. So we farmed salmon, um, and our uh, total um, our total tonnage by the time we, we we'd reached that was probably about two thousand tons. I was employing ten workers on the fish farm. Uh, we had a fleet of different work boats, and I'm delighted to say that nearly all the people employed in my fish farm had either been full-time fishermen or had been fishermen at some time in Shetland. And uh, I've nothing but respect uh, for these guys that I had the privilege of working for me. They were seamen to uh, expert with nets, with engines, and particularly knew how to work with fish. So I was very lucky, and Shetland fish farming has been very lucky to tap into that incredible talent pool. Um, so we did salmon, at, and then I, when the price of salmon collapsed in the early 2000s, I, I looked at um, organic salmon, uh, because for the simple reason that organic salmon was getting a better price. Um, and we converted our farm from conventional salmon to organic salmon. And we supplied uh, Waitrose in the UK, and we also supplied Whole Foods in the United States, two of the sort of top seafood retailers, both in the UK and in the States. And we produced uh, what I regarded as a very, very good product. Uh, it was a different way of thinking uh, on the salmon farm. We lower stocking densities, different feed, the fish grew slower. Uh, but that was a, uh, so I, I, I absolutely enjoyed my time farming fish. And then I really enjoyed the dipping our toes into the organic market, which uh, was really interesting. I think maybe, John, am I right in saying when you say the top, it said Waitrose and the company in Australia, in America, when you say the top, I think you're talking. You mean you mean top as far as quality is concerned, not in bulk. Uh, absolutely no. This when I say uh, quality, I'm talking. You know, Waitrose is regarded as the, you know, the the supermarket you go to that's go where food is going to cost you more than other supermarkets, and the quality will probably be a little bit better. And Whole Foods in the states is exactly the same. Um, so. We we were able to sell our organic salmon into these very two niche retail markets, and uh, and we did we did well with that. John, please tell the audience what you had to do to make a non-organic salmon organic. Yeah, really interesting. The there were a whole host of things we had to reduce the stocking density in the farm. So usually a fish farm would have about prior to harvest twenty kilos per cubic meter. 
The maximum for organic was 10. So we had to half our stocking density. We needed twice as many cages. Um, we were not allowed to use anti-fouling on our salmon nets uh, at all. So we had to invest in net cleaners. So we, uh, so that was another thing we, we had to do. Um, and But one of the most fundamental things we had to do was in our feed. There was a trend to... As, as feed developed, the oil content of feed increased, and that made your fish grow faster. So, you know, feed was up around 38% of your fish farm feed was oil. Um, and the organic standard stipulated you could not be more than 32% oil, because that was the equivalent of what a salmon would eat in the wild in terms of, of oil content. So we, we, we converted to that, and our salmon grew more slowly. But the net result was, and I'm a huge advocate of farmed salmon as a wonderful fish, uh, but no question, our slower growing organic salmon was less oily to touch and was uh, an incredibly good eating experience. So those are the kind of things that we had to do. The other thing, actually, we had to do, we couldn't use artificial coloring in our feed. So we had to use the feed manufacturer had to use shrimp shells, crush shrimp shells. Uh, so the net result was that our organic salmon, it was pink, but it was a very pale pink compared with other salmon. So it was a whole new way of farming fish. Fascinating. But I always feel you had one fantastic uh, marketing tool, John, just the name of the island. It's it's all about quality, Orkney as well. Orkney as well. I have to say, just talk mention Shetland and Orkney, and you immediately think quality. Yeah, John, where you said there, you're a great advocate for farmed salmon. Let's be careful there. There's farmed salmon coming out of Chile that have been tested, and because their fat content is above that magic thirty-two percent line. The toxicity between the fat and the meat is enormous. And the tests suggest that for the first time, we've produced a salmon that has a negative metabolic effect, as in the benefits you gain from eating the fish don't offset your expenditure in digesting it. Are you aware of such qualities of farmed fish as well? No, I was unaware of that. I mean, I know that there have been, I, I, in my opinion, I think the quality of salmon coming out of Scotland coming out of Faroe and Norway is incredible. Yeah. I do know, I have no experience of it, but I do know that um, Chile has been well behind the curve in terms of antibiotics, in terms of sea mice, in terms of management. So that, I, I wasn't aware of that, but to be honest, that probably doesn't surprise me. Like tilapia from China. It sh it's meant to be fed with processed human waste, but the cost of processing can sometimes tally up, so it's often spread. And that causes the toxicity in the tilapia and the salmon. I thought I'd bring that up because I am. A, I think what you both said is right. The the brand, the Scottish flag. Look, I I navigate Colombia with the Scottish flag because it's an identity of a whiskey. Everybody drinks it and knows it, but also anything to do with culinary cheeses, whiskies, 
anything Scottish sells here, and you always see it on the top rows of the supermarkets that seldom can people afford. You'll see the, the classic Morangis, and you'll see a Scottish smoked salmon that's twice as expensive as the local stuff. So yeah, you've got a, something to be proud of there, and you were a farmer at the heart of it all. That's great. No, it was a great, a great period, and uh, Ashley and we, we continued to uh, operate our salmon farm until uh, it was two thousand and seven. And in the last few years of the salmon farm, when we converted to organic, I dabbled a little bit with farmed halibut. Oh uh, yeah, it was absolutely fascinating. The, I uh, there was a very small number of companies did this. And I used to I used to choke with people. I said, you know, they would ask about farmed halibut and I would say, you know, I'm the third biggest halibut farmer in the UK. But but, but there are only three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And but I really enjoyed it. We 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 got our juvenile halibut sometimes from um uh, Otter Ferry on the west coast of Scotland and when we took a shipment from Iceland and we grew them and I, it was a kind of an add-on to the salmon farm. We used the same boats. The halibut were fed at the end of the day when the guys had finished the salmon work. Um, so it's fascinating, but it never really became commercially viable uh, because it took too. It took four years to bring a, a halibut to market size. Mm -hmm. It was just too long. You were just your natural mortalities. You were losing a lot, and then, unbeknown to me. Um, you know, the female halibut grow to seven, eight kilo. And Jim, you'll know this. And, you know, a seven, eight kilo halibut gets premium price, whether it's farmed or, or wild. The male halibut stopped growing about two kilo. And this happens in the wild as well as farmed. So you half of your stock are male halibut. And they're only two kilo. They've eaten all of this food and they don't grow anymore. And you get a really poor price. It's only when it comes over three kilo you get the good price. So a combination of of uh, of too many male halibut and a too long a time to grow really prevented the halibut from becoming uh, a commercially viable uh, fish to farm. But had great fun doing it, and it was, a, as I say, a really interesting add-on to our organic salmon business. I've I've spoken quite a few times to a guy who's got the uh, the gear halibut. That's right, Alistair Barch. That's right. Yeah, and Alistair said to me once, he said, it's very easy to take the halibut up to about an inch, an inch and a half long, and then very easy to take them from about maybe two and a half to three inches to as big as they can get. But he says, that bit in between, he says, that's the tricky part. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. I mean, one of the great things with salmon, uh, from a salmon egg, you get 94 or 95% salmon eggs become salmon smolts, which you can release to see. For halibut, from halibut eggs, the juvenile halibut of the size you refer to, it's about 6 or 7%. Huge difference, huge challenge. Where do you get your halibut eggs? Do you strip them from female fish or do you buy them from a supplier? Bought them from a supplier, Ashley. We bought them from Alistair Barge from Gia. He had his own halibut factory. And uh, these were, were good fish. And then we also tried, uh, we bought some from Iceland, a company up in Aquaria in Iceland. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, we had two two sources. We, we, we bought in from, from two different sources. I believe Gia Halibut is closing, which I find disappointing. 
really disappointing. And I think Alistair, you know, he's been Mr. Halibut for so long and he's given it a really good go, but I think he's just struggling with the same problem. They take so long to grow. Uh, there's the female-male split. And, uh, and I think COVID, like so many people supplying the fresh market, COVID had a really bad impact on him. So I was so disappointed to see uh, the gear. John, you know, as far as the plant world goes, farmers have this, well, not farmers, but growers have the same situation where if you plant 100 seeds, you're going to get about a 50-50 male-female. But of course, for the last 12 years, geneticists have altered seeds so that you're going to get 100% female. There must be efforts to genetically modify halibut seeds or halibut eggs for females. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, when after we sold our company in 2007, I got a I got a phone call from a company in Nova Scotia called Scotian Halibut, and they said, "You know, we've cracked the male female thing. We can provide all females." And I was thinking, "Well, oh, you know, it's, it's come too late for us. We've we've sold mm -hmm. them." But in the event they hadn't cracked it, they thought they had, yeah. but they hadn't. Yeah. But that will come. That will come. It's been. It's being worked on as we speak. And when that comes, that will be, as they say, a, a game changer for the halibut. And then 10 years after that, you're going to have the protesters saying male halibut are under threat. <laughs> Absolutely. So so where do you see the future, John, with the, of the fishing industry? Yeah. Well, I, uh, reflecting a bit on the future of the fishing industry, I've been incredibly lucky to have worked my entire life, and I continue to do so in the seafood industry, in fish catching. I was involved in fish processing with the Shetland Catch, Herring and Mackerel Plant in Shetland, and of course I've been involved in fish farming. So I feel incredibly fortunate to have spent my life in this wonderful industry. I'm optimistic about the future, incredibly optimistic, uh, because uh, high quality seafood, whether wild catch or farm, uh, has got a great reputation. Um, but I think as far as fish catching is concerned, I would say there are two big threats that, uh, and big problems. I think the first is the environmental movement. Now, let me make it clear, the fishing industry has got to get its act right. We've got to do things sustainably. We've got to conserve fish stocks. We've got to do all that properly. And many of the environmental NGOs have helped the fishing industry get there. I'm a huge supporter of Marine Stewardship Council. Um, you know, they've helped the fishing industry develop so that most by tonnage of the Scottish and, 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 and UK catches MSC certified, there was until very recently. Um, and some of the NGOs, RSPB, WWF, really have worked very well with the fishing industry. But we now have, I believe, uh, a very dangerous element within the environmental movement, which seems to be hell-bent on closing huge areas of the seabed in some misguided attempt to think that that's the way to conserve fish. And of course, the HMPA fiasco in Scotland, highly uh, uh, protected marine areas, was a case in point. Without any scientific rigour whatsoever, 10% of Scotland's inshore waters were going to be closed, not only to fishing, not only to fish farming, you couldn't drop an anchor, you couldn't go swimming, you couldn't sail a boat, you couldn't go windsurfing. It was unbelievable. And yet that 
got to the stage of a consultation document. And I'm delighted to say the opposition uh, from coastal communities throughout Scotland, the hit song by Skippenish, the Celtic band, the principled opposition by one or two politicians, and namely Fergus Ewing, who tore up the consultation document in Parliament and said it was the product of wine bar revolutionaries. All of that combined to get it dropped. But it was a close-run thing. So I see that the this unreasonable, simplistic, green campaigning uh, is a real threat to the seafood industry going forward, fish farming and fishing. And I believe what the fishing industry has to do is take ownership of the sustainability issue. We have to stop reacting to proposals. The fishing industry has got to take ownership of sustainability and say, this is what we are doing because it's the right thing to do for the fish stocks. It's the right thing to do for the profitability of our industry. And I think we're beginning to see that with, uh, um, you know, there are many examples, but uh, I would just mention two. Uh, uh, the Shetland regulating order has all been about conserving shellfish and Shetland scallops and Shetland brown crabs are MSC certified. And that's because of better regulation where the initiative was taken by fishermen. And on the pelagic sector, the self-sampling scheme, which the uh, pelagic industry are undertaking in combination with scientists to improve the assessment of stocks, is another example. There are many. So the fishing industry has to take ownership of the sustainability argument and not simply react to this nonsense that's coming from the Green Lobby. I would go one further there, John, and, and one of the interesting things you might have heard Michael Kaiser coming up with is if he reckons the industry should take ownership of quota management and stock assessment as well. Well, that's a really, I mean, the industry, I guess, already has ownership of quota management through the sectoral quota system uh, with all its problems. But stock assessment, that's so interesting because I think it's in New Zealand where the fishing industry funds, they pay for stock assessment. Uh, now, it's obviously undertaken by scientists, but the government don't do it. It's the industry that do it. Um, and I've often wondered, New Zealand is ahead in many ways. I've often wondered how that might work here. But that's exactly, I think, I, I, I would concur with that, Jim. The fishing industry has to be more proactive in terms of stock assessment, in terms of managing quotas, in terms of enforcement. And we've got to demonstrate to the white, wider public that the fishing industry is really focused on sustainability. And I was just, I, I, I was just reading recently a quote uh, by Charles Clover of Blue Marine, one of the more I know, uh, I know. bigger NGOs. And, Charles, and, and this just took my breath away. He said, and this was in Fishing News a few weeks back, he said, the job of government is to restrain the fishing industry from annihilating the wild fish and shellfish on which it depends. He's portraying the fishing industry that if they're not controlled, they will annihilate stocks. Yeah. Does, he, does he never talk to fishermen? Who are the people who are going to suffer when the stocks are annihilated? 
It won't be Charles Clover and his team in Blue Marine. It will be the fishermen and their families who depend on these stocks. So that kind of comment really annoys me. And I think that's what the fishing industry challenge is. They've got to take ownership of sustainability so that these kind of comments can't be made. Unfortunately, they do have resonance because the fishing industry still has some way to go uh, in taking ownership of the sustainability argument. But we have to do this or else there will be more of these ill-informed and, frankly, uh, uh, ridiculous comments. Uh, a, a similar comment I responded myself to today on LinkedIn was a guy, Callum Duncan, of the Marine Conservation Society, having a go at the Scottish government for the, going back on the HMPA. And, and it, he says, ah, going against international science. And I just put a reply to him and I says, you've missed one word, one important word. I says, international flawed science. And as I mean, we're it, talking it, it, about the fleet size, 25% of the size it was in the 70s and 80s. And I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, the HMPA argument just illustrates this. I mean, I'm, I'm, of course, there are arguments for closed areas where there, there's particular uh, ecosystems, there's uh, species which are in, 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 in really rare coral reefs, metal beds. All of this, I think, within the Shetland Regulating Order, which was a local initiative by, by the Shetland fishing industry, within the Shetland Regulating Order, I think there's 16 closed areas. So closed areas are part of the future, but that's how to do it from the bottom up, not imposed blanket 10% from government and down. The, I mean, many, many years ago, the Clyde Fishermen's Association closed the... Clyde for weekend fishing. Yeah. And that's the kind of management measures which have the backing of the fishing industry. Um, so absolutely. So there's a lot to do there. John, um, to counter what you said there, that quote you read, we had somebody on, I believe it was, I don't recall the guest, but here's what the argument was. That quote you said is perhaps not specifically saying fishermen would destroy their own resources because the argument that was put to us is there is a philosophy used in politics and it is when you get in the past whenever self-regulation has been given to an industry whether it's taxis in a city whether it's potatoes in a country it takes between three and ten bad men at the top of that system to completely strip the resources from the entire industry so the acquisition isn't towards all fishermen but it's against the concept of self-management, which does fail quite a lot, John. Do you understand that one? I, I, I do understand that. But, but you know, if you take the UK or you take Scotland, the quota system is based on science, scientific assessment. And the management of the quota system is undertaken by the industry, but it's policed by government. You know, the regulation and the fishing industry wasn't always policed and regulated the way it is. Blackfish was a, a feature of the industry 20 years ago. But that doesn't exist now. Um, you know, quotas are, are properly regulated. So, of course, there are bad people in every industry. But I think the regulatory regime we have 
certainly in the UK and Scotland, is such that uh, these activities no longer are allowed to happen. So I think that's where I'm coming from, that this idea that, you know, and I quote Charles Clover, that the job of government is to restrain the fishing industry from an island. He doesn't say to restrain a few bad eggs, a few, a few bad people. It's, it's everybody start with a rush, which I think is just a, an absolutely disgraceful comment. Yeah, I agree with that. And also, many a person has experienced this closed areas. Well, I think what you're saying there, John, is you you use the word managed at the same time because history has proved to many a people around the world that you close an area for any for a long period of time, and there's you'll never get fish in that area again. Yeah, and I think closed areas needs to be. Uh, it, it, I think there is a place for closed areas, but they've got to be properly uh, based on proper science, and I think agreed with all the participants. Um, you know, there's yeah. many examples of areas, nursery areas, closed areas, areas where uh, you know mobile gear and static gear are, are are separated. So there's a lot of merit in that, but it has to be done. Working from the bottom up and not opposed from the top. I, mean, I always think it was a successful uh, method the Faroese used. We we had a, for a number of years. It went on, and there was a, a from May the the inshore areas opened from May to October, and the the regulation was. You had to be you, the length of your boat had to be within a length, and your horsepower had to be below. You know, I think it was five hundred horsepower. Over that, you weren't allowed in, and I think it was about an old money seventy feet, and and that was that was really fantastic. And my goodness, when I think of the size and the quality of place and lemon sole and things like that. It was just fantastic. And then they got arrested. You know, come October, it stopped yep. again. And a sophisticated fisheries management regime will incorporate all of these things. Um, but it's got to be done with industry support. Uh, and it's possible that that can happen as Shetland regulating order, I keep coming back to that, but it, it is possible for these things to be done, or as you say, Jim, with what the Faroese did. Can I hold us there for two seconds, guys? What's happened here is, which is wonderful, is we've got a one hour, 17 minute natural place to end an episode. However, we haven't even started to discuss salt roads and books. So we have two options. We do our thank yous and we have an episode right here, which we get to publish in the next couple of weeks. And you know, John could become a, a friend of the show and come back for another episode again. And I think we could get two blocks out of it. But I'll let you decide, Jim. What do you think? <laughs> you mean I'm not getting the fire all these questions I've written down about the salt roads? <laughs> we can. Uh, I, I wonder, you know, we're mic'd up. It's working. We've got into our routine. Let's, you know, that's, that's the, that's, the first bit, why don't we just move on to the book and then that can be a second podcast, but record it just now. 
I love your enthusiasm. I can't believe you're prepared to sit for another hour and a half, but it is your stuff. How do you want to play this? What do you think? I think when you're saying there, you're, when you're stopping us, Ashley. No, I'm not. Am I thinking that, that? No, no, but you're plugging this up. Mm-hmm. It's almost like, right, we've talked about the industry and not the books. Do we make the books a separate, you know, so that we have a very clear line at where we are just now? I think we would stand to do an injustice to your books by tra- cramming it into a 10 minute edit. That's what I suggest we do. I'm delighted with that, Ashley, because um, you, you know there's so much to cover in the books. There and, is, and and I'm I'm more than happy to come back, set this up in a couple of weeks' time, and we can do it. I can see Ashley's point, John. No, I'm, 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 I'm delighted with that. I think that's a great suggestion. I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and I listen to one called "The Rest Is History." Oh, I, I like that. And it's good. And then they have this expression for people they get come back to a friend of the show and so and so. I just said to you four minutes ago you could become our friend of the show because there's a good relationship there going on and it works. So Yeah. Well, thank you for all that, John. It's been a real interesting lesson. I've been fascinated and it's uh, great having you on the podcast. And we really look forward to having you back again within a month or so. We're really looking forward. Where we'll discuss your books, and I'm really looking forward to discussing them because I'm loving reading them. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, Jim. That's very kind. And and I've absolutely enjoyed this podcast. You've both been great hosts, and we've covered an incredibly wide but interesting area. So absolutely loved it. Thank you very much. John, thank you very much indeed for joining us and we'll see you in a few weeks' time to talk about your books. Super, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you liked it, hit subscribe, share it with a friend or leave a five-star review. And if you want to speak with me, visit seafoodmatterspodcast.com.